Today's teaching text comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 16, beginning in verse 19. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them, so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, Good morning once again. My name's Guy, and uh, it's really good to see you here worshiping with us this morning. At Trinity Grace, here in the East Village, uh, we are... About to wrap up our last, our last parable in this series, The Present Kingdom. We named the series this on purpose because there's this sense, this tension that what we experience in life today isn't everything that it's meant to be. And the present future, the idea of the kingdom of God in the future, but bringing it into the present reality right now, today. That what is in God's heart for the new heavens and the new earth down the road can actually be experienced and tasted and be real for us. I don't know about you, but I certainly need that in my life. I don't know what kind of week you had, if it was really easy for you to stay on the straight and narrow, so to speak. Or if maybe this week was really challenging for you and you found yourself consistently in positions and making decisions that don't look like the sort of person you want to be. Anybody? Thank you. There's an honest one among us yet. And so we live in this tension of just constantly wrestling and Paul's words being very true for our own story that we consistently do the things we don't want to do and we can't seem to do the things that we want. It's back and forth. And it's just so frustrating. And so the idea of the parables is that possibly the, the idea that Jesus says the kingdom is like this is giving us a picture of sort of the life that we can live, the life that we are invited into to experience ourselves. And so over the last couple of weeks, um, I just want to remind us of the beauty of the kind of story and life that God's invited us into. Uh, one week we looked at the mustard seed and the whole point of the mustard seed parable, if you remember, is that oftentimes the kingdom of God is so small, so insignificant, so seemingly fragile that what good could possibly come of it? And Jesus says, no, no, don't write it off. The kingdom is so profound. It's so beautiful. It will develop into something that is incredible and will provide protection and provision for those that will find rest in the tree. 
That's an incredible story. That's an incredible invitation and reality about the kingdom of God. We also talked about uh, the four soils, that there was a sower sowing seed in the soil. And there's different types of soil. And that that whole parable was about the condition of our heart. And it's possible, friends, to have a heart that receives well the word of God. But it's also possible to have a heart that is resistant to the way of the kingdom. And we end up losing or not experiencing the fullness of what God has invited us into. We talked about the generous landowner who just, God is not fair, but he's generous and kind. We've looked at all of these different incredible invitations from Jesus, where Jesus says the kingdom is like. And it's all like generally very positive and beautiful and and encouraging, isn't it? That the kingdom of God is like, starts out really small and insignificant and everybody would just sort of pass it up. But God would say, no, 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 just wait and see. That's like a really beautiful truth of not only the, 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 the seed of God that's planted in each of our lives and the potential of what he can do with it. But just the beauty of that truth in who we are as, as people. That somebody might just pass you up and say, oh yeah, that's just so and so. They don't really have much to offer. But in the kingdom of God, he sees you. Right? That's really encouraging, isn't it? Okay, just for me, great. But this is an inc- that's an incredible statement and reality of the kingdom of God. And then we have all these other little encouraging things, and we get to a text like this. And guys, I don't, I didn't really want to preach Luke sixteen this morning. I don't know if you were listening during the teaching text, but this is basically about hell. So welcome to welcome to hell. Some people actually might might really feel that way, actually, but. This is a hard teaching. And one of the reasons that I'm consistently drawn to Jesus is because he wasn't just trying to fluff things up. He's not just always this nice, approachable, soft, lovey guy, lovey Jesus. He sometimes said and did things that repelled people. I mean, if you ever spend any time looking at the scriptures, you'll see that people are consistently drawn to him and people are consistently repelled. They're pushed away. I said a couple of weeks ago that there's generally no neutrality. Generally no neutrality. I'm not sure that works. There's no neutrality. There's nothing neutral in the kingdom of God. It's, you're either for and with and moving forward, or it's backwards. It's being pu- repelled away, pushed away. And so here Jesus has some really hard things to say. Here Jesus is essentially turning everything upside down. This is a reversal of what we know to be true in our life. And it's helpful for us to pause and look at the context of Luke 16 in its larger picture. You see, Jesus is talking not only about what his kingdom was like, but also the things that kept people from experiencing it as well. Okay, this is really important for us to understand. Jesus was concerned in describing what the kingdom of God is like. That it's like a mustard seed, that it's like a sower sowing seed, that it's like a, 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 a landowner who's inviting people in to work in his vineyard. But it's also Jesus making sure people understand how hard it is. What it actually really takes to, be, to experience it, to get inside of the kingdom, to participate And so the best way for us to really understand this is to look at the larger context to realize what exactly Jesus is talking about. Because he's he's wrestling with this bigger issue of stewardship, I think. We won't take the time to go back and read everything, but if if you went back and read the first 15 verses of Luke chapter 16, you'll see that he's talking about resources, about money, about stewardship. 
and what we can be trusted with. In fact, in verse 11, Jesus says in this earlier parable, he says, so if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? Jesus is beginning to give us a clue about how not only life on this world, in this earth, looks like, but also what life in the kingdom of God looks like as well. And he's not shying away from talking about money. Now, this is important. Jesus himself is not afraid of talking about how we deal with the resources of the world. And now you might be thinking, okay, great, here's another church that's going to talk about money. Aren't we, aren't we tired of this? Aren't we over this? Isn't this too much But Jesus himself, all all the time, frequently, is going back to to this very topic. I think one of the reasons is because Jesus understands that there are certain things that have a stronger chokehold on our soul. Friends, there are certain things that have a stronger grip on who we are as people. And I wonder if Jesus knew that somehow the resources of our life, our very money had some type of stronger centrifugal force to get us out of sorts, to get us distracted, to grab our hearts and cause us to worship things that are lesser gods. Look at verse 13. Well, I don't have it on the screen, but you can go back and look at it in your own scriptures, write it down. This is what he basically says. He says that we cannot serve two masters. Jesus is trying to draw a line in the sand and say, listen, you have to pay attention to where your heart's at, friends, because if you're drawn to this pursuit of money... And, and maybe some of us in the room are thinking, well, that would be great, guy. If I had any money, I'd be worried about it becoming an idol. Can I get an amen? amen. Okay, I see, where we're, I see where we're at today. <laughs> and so maybe we don't have any money. Maybe, maybe, maybe most of us find ourselves in a very similar season of life, and we're just thinking like, okay, I want to, remind, I want to remember this talk in 20 years when I actually have an income and a career. But maybe, maybe the way this shows up, friends, for us is we, we pause and we consider the pursuit of this other station in life that is not yet, but we long for it to be true of ourselves. And so maybe, maybe in a way, we're already conditioned for money to be the master that we bow down to because even though we don't have it yet, but because we think that's what we're supposed to have. Because our whole lives are oriented around that pursuit that endeavor arriving at a certain station and status in life where i can at least just pay all my bills on time (laughs) or have excess or whatever it is that the vision of your life is about and jesus is basically trying to point out in this context as he begins to tell this other parable about this rich man and lazarus that we can't serve two masters that it's impossible for us to bow down or to worship and elevate the master of the system of the world in money and god at the same time It doesn't work that way. And every time Jesus talked about this particular issue, about stewardship and finances and and money and and tithing, every time Jesus did that, somebody got upset. Maybe like a couple of us in the room. Why does this pastor have to be talking about this right now? And you know who got upset all the time? Do you know who got the most frustrated? It was the religious elite It was the people who thought they had their act together. It was everybody who consistently did the right things, religiously speaking. They're the ones that were the most frustrated, the most upset all the time at Jesus when he brought up this topic. Verse 14 says, the Pharisees who loved money, that's an interesting thing to be said about somebody, isn't it? It says, the Pharisees who loved money heard all of this 
and were sneering at Jesus. They were frustrated. They were angry. They were upset because what Jesus was saying was messing up their way of life. And so this issue of stewardship is setting the context for us as we get ready to start thinking about what Jesus is really driving at here in the latter part of Luke 16. But I want to tell you, friends, I want to like, on, like honestly, I, I, I welcome any conversation that happens within our community. I love it. I love the opportunity to be able to sit and whether it's over a cup of coffee or on a Sunday morning like this or whatever the case may be, to be able to talk about the things that God is doing in our lives. But I want to tell you a conversation that I've never had. Out of all the things that you've shared with me and brought into your, like the stories that we've been able to participate together, like out of everything that's been confessed, all the tears, all the celebration, all that we know, out of all of that, one conversation that's never come up in the history of me being a pastor, you know what it is? Guy, I think I'm really messing up. I'm giving away too much money. The confession of like, guy, I'm just being way too generous and I can't pay my own bills now because I gave away everything that I had. I can't make it to the next payday. What do I do? I've never had that confession. That conversation's never happened. In fact, I've never been able to say that. And so it's interesting that on the one hand, Jesus is saying we have to be careful of the the role that money has in our lives. And yet at the same time, we often shy away ourselves from this very conversation. It's good for us to stop and to take check of our own hearts, of our own stories, of the way that we are being stewards in this world. And this is an important conversation. Jesus keeps bringing it up. And so I figured, well, we might as well talk about this as well. One of the things that Jesus initially does in this text overall, sort of like a larger theme, if you want to like sort of create an umbrella or a category here, is Jesus changes the buy-in for the kingdom of God. Now, I'm borrowing this language from a particular way of, of, of playing life, of doing life, especially as it relates to poker, to cards. Any of you ever play poker? It's okay. You're, you can say that. When you, get, when you sit down to a certain activity in life, most of the time in cards especially, there's a, there's a buy, there's a minimum bet that has to be placed on the table. Um, I was with a friend recently, we were in the Poconos on vacation and never been to a casino before, and uh, there was a roulette table. You know what roulette is? You've seen these things, you spin the ball and it lands on a color or a number, and if you put your chips on that, then you win, right? So it's not too difficult, not too hard, but my friend sits down at this table, and he only had 20 bucks left, and, um, and so he's like, I don't know what to do. So he's actually talking to the dealer about what to do, about like how to play this game. Let me just tell you in general, if you're going to play a game that involves money, you should probably know the rules before you sit down. That's for free. But anyway, so he sits down. He puts his, he puts his chips all on, all on, all on, uh, all on black. And the, the, the wheel spins. And he, he, he got it. The ball hit. He, was, he wins. He doubles up his money. He's now got 40 bucks. This is incredible. He's super excited. This is amazing. But what he doesn't realize is he sat down. Like before we even started, he sat down at a $10 table. So he's only got 20 bucks. He's like, okay, well, I guess I got to put all this in. Like $10 and another $10. So he doesn't realize that there's a $5 table right next to him. Now, it worked out because he doubled up his, on his money, but as soon as you sit down to play any of these types of games, you have to put a minimum bet in, and my friend sat down at a, at a $10 table. He has, it's $10 to play, just one thing. You're not even in control of it. $10, boom. And I think most of us sit down thinking we're at the cheap table in the kingdom of God. We want to make the minimum bet, whatever's least required of us, so that we could get the greatest return, and Jesus is saying it doesn't work that way. Jesus is changing the buy-in, friends. See, I think you and I approach 
our relationship with Jesus the same way that we do with almost everything else, very practically speaking. And we want the biggest return for the least amount of work and investment. Am I touching on somebody's, am I getting too close to home for some of us? Is it possible that we treat God that way? Is it possible that we approach the kingdom of God and even the, even the family of God, even our faith community the same way? I will put just enough in so that people think I'm honest and a little bit funny and approachable, but that's where I draw the line and I want them to give me everything because I deserve it or I want to be known or I need community or I have the, and you fill in the blank. This is important for us to recognize, friends, because Jesus is constantly reversing the, the order of things. He's constantly reframing how we think and see the kingdom, how we see our lives and relating to him. See, Jesus isn't interested in people who are half-hearted for the kingdom of God, who just give tips and, and, and little scraps and leftovers. He's not interested in, 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 in us giving him like whatever's left over, just lingering around, whatever we could possibly find. Jesus is trying to find the people, inviting in, drawing a line in the sand in some instances, trying to find the people who were willing to count the cost, who are willing to recognize the big picture, the whole thing. I mean, think about some of the other teachings of, of, of the kingdom through Jesus' own words. He says, love your enemy. And then when the people around him are frustrated, especially the religious elite, about what loving your enemy even looks like, they say, well, what does that, what does that mean? And he says, well, you have, to, you have to walk the extra mile with him. And then when you get to the end destination, then give them your coat. When Jesus is teaching about what it means to love your neighbor, the question is what? Well, who's my neighbor? You see, they asked that question because they wanted to trick Jesus because they didn't actually want to love their neighbor because they knew who their neighbor was. When Jesus is talking about adultery or about murder, he says that what we think in our minds, how we feel in our hearts is the same as actually sleeping with somebody who's not our spouse or actually literally physically killing somebody. See, Jesus is not interested in half-hearted approaches to the kingdom of God. Jesus is trying to turn everything upside down. He's trying to raise the minimum buy-in from this little kind of like, just let me just put whatever's necessary to going all in. And so that's what, Jesus, that's what Jesus is doing. That's what's in his heart. And so this, in that context, in light of what Jesus is doing and trying to wake us up to the issues of stewardship and resources and money and the grip that it has in our lives, he then tells this parable about two men about two very different sets of circumstances and about the two very different outcomes or results from their lives. And it's not hard to understand and get the picture here. I mean, most of us have heard this talk, have seen these, uh, this scripture many times before. And essentially, Jesus is setting the stage. We have these two different types of men indicated, really essentially, while Jesus is telling the story, and there's two, it is about two men, it's really about two different types of people. So it's not just about being a rich man, it's about being a rich person and the kind of category and the, 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 the hang-ups, the reality that comes with that life. And it's not just about being an actual beggar who is a male but it's about the position and disposition of this person so it's about people types of people don't get hung up on that but the rich man here in this story is somebody who is radically wealthy beyond belief and we have a couple of different indications about this it doesn't it's not really necessary for us to get in, get bogged down by all of this but most commentators and people believe that this was the, one of the wealthiest people in all of the land 
This rich man, super wealthy. The text tells us that he had linen clothes, undergarments, and was clothed in purple. The the clues here give us this indication that um, if you are wearing the color purple, no matter what, you are super wealthy. Because it wasn't just like you could just show up to the market and scoop up some like knockoff purple clothing. It just, that just didn't work. You couldn't like just rock up with your, your, your knockoff purple Air Jordan 3s. That doesn't, it doesn't, that you couldn't do that. You, 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 purple dye was so radically expensive that only the truly wealthy had it. And so in this parable, Jesus is saying, this man is so, this person is so wealthy, he's robed in purple. And just to make sure Jesus knew that we understood this guy was so incredibly wealthy, he's also telling us that he had linen cloths. Well, basically what he's saying is he had designer underwear. That's essentially what's happening. The, the only, only the wealthy of, like only the most rich people in the, in, in the day who could afford to wear this linen clothing as an undergarment. And so like you and I might try to front by, by buying one really nice piece of clothing or nice shoes and accenting it with whatever. This guy is dressed head to toe with the nicest stuff because he can afford it. Not only that, he has all of the resources at his disposal. I mean, can you imagine coming in and out, having the parties, having the respect, the favor? Many theologians believe that he was at the height of the religious community there as well. This guy probably did all of the right religious things, even. Showing up to synagogue and paying his own tithe and memorizing the Torah and singing praises, all this stuff. Meanwhile, in his own home, in his own area where he's, the, where he's literally the king, right outside of his gate, this parable tells us that there's this really needy guy named Lazarus. And Lazarus would be so excited and so happy because he's at such a low station in life that even if he had the scraps from a dog, he would be happy. Lazarus is poor. He's likely crippled because he's completely and totally dependent on other people to bring him, to survive, to move him from one place to another. Even Lazarus's name means God helps. And I wonder how many times Lazarus sat outside of this rich man's gate and had to listen to the party and could maybe see what was going on, but certainly know that there was this experiencing that was happening that he couldn't participate in. And I wonder how many times he thought to himself, my name means God helps. Where is this God? Where is this God? Where is the help? Because all he could do is beg and hope that someone would have compassion on him and reach out. And it never happened. The text tells us that he was so poor and so destitute and at the very just end of his own rope that the only way the sores on his legs could get any kind of healing or satisfaction or relief was the dogs licked them. The neighborhood dogs, the scrappy dogs, we're not talking about little purse dogs that you see in Tompkins Square Park. These are not like the cute foo-foo things that have been to the vet and groomings, you know. That's, we're talking about the scrappy, gnarly vermin the the animals from the community nobody took care of they were his friends lazarus probably would have been looked at as a complete failure someone who somehow did something wrong what 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 possible terrible decision did lazarus make that would 
end up having him there at the entrance to this rich man's house? Like, what, what did he do? What sin did he commit? Had to have been the thought that would go through people's minds. What terrible crime or thing did he do, sin did he commit to end up in that position? I mean, why doesn't he just pull himself up by his bootstraps, right? Like, how many times do you walk by somebody who's in a lower station in life than you? At least that's what you think. And you make some judgment in your own mind. You say, oh, well, if they would just do this and this. Come on, let's be honest. We do that. You and I do that. We make judgments about people. Somebody asks you for 27 cents or a dollar or whatever it is, and we immediately, we have, we have conclusions in our minds that we've already made up. Whether we're going to help that person or what this person's story may have been to end up them being in that position. We're surrounded by this as people that live in New York City. Some commentators say that um, Lazarus probably didn't even get an actual funeral. That if this man, of course it's a parable, but if this were a, a, a real human being, that this, this person in this society, in this story, certainly wouldn't have had nice words said about him or people to come around and grieve him or to sing songs or to mark his grave. Nobody would have mourned his loss. And yet we see here in the rich man that he gets this profound funeral, this ex- incredible, extravagant experience. Well, the story tells us that both of the men end up taking their last breath. They both end up sort of in a way in the position and station in life that they've been creating for themselves. And it's very interesting to, again, see how Jesus flips things upside down in this story. And you would think the man who had everything in this world would have everything in the afterlife and that the man who had nothing would continue to have nothing. But Jesus says it's just the other way around. And this is where Jesus begins to play with our perspective and our thoughts. This is where Jesus begins to to challenge us and to say hard things. So the rich man, the story tells us, is found in Hades, this, this temporary realm for the dead, this experience of hell, this complete total torment and devastation, this conscious torment and grief. In fact, it's the same word grief used here that's used when Mary and Joseph lose Jesus and Jesus is in the temple actually schooling the rabbis. But Mary and Joseph don't know that. They've lost their son and they are tormented with grief. They're filled with anguish. It's the same word. Think about what it might feel like to lose your child, to not know where they are. The rich man is now experiencing this same type of pain and punishment and torment, this grief, this anguish. And you would think that this station in life, listen, friends, if you've got everything and your whole life you're used to having everything and all you have to do is snap your fingers and people bring you what you need. Now, suddenly you have nothing. You would think that maybe there would be a little bit of humility, that maybe there would be a little bit of a question in your mind. You would think, "Okay, I had all of this and now I have nothing. What do I need to get back to that? Right? You start problem solving. We're pragmatic people. You start trying to think of like, "Okay, what do I need to do to solve this issue to fix this and maybe just maybe you would begin to get a little introspective and you would begin to think about your own heart but that doesn't happen that doesn't happen for the rich man in fact what happens is the exact opposite this man in this story is so set in his ways he doesn't even recognize the error in it you see because what this man does the rich man in this story what he ends up doing is he just says he says um listen um father abraham 
He tries to pull the religious card, basically. He's stuck in hell, and he can somehow, in this parable, see somebody that can help him. He can see Abraham. He can see the person that can help him, that can deliver him. And he, he's, he tries calling out to him. Why? Because he's the religious elite. He knows all the right answers. And so he tries to use the same tactics that got him through life. But here, in this occasion, they don't work anymore. And then he finally asks if Lazarus himself could come and help him. Can you believe the audacity? That you're the rich man and you've ignored this man in real life, in, 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 in regular everyday life. You've completely turned your back on him. And now in your greatest moment of need, you think he's the one that's going to come and help you? You see the, 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 the devastating effects of the life that this rich man chose to live. The callousness of his heart. He says in the scriptures, he says in Luke 16, this is the rich man speaking now to Father Abraham. He says, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and even just cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. You begin to get the sense of the pain that this rich man is experiencing and just how much he would just be so satisfied for one little drop of water. One commentator says, even in Hades, the rich man is arrogant, thinking that he can have Lazarus sent to do his bidding. You see, friends, I think this is, this is where we begin to get a clue about what Jesus is talking about here. See, I think this story is, is not so much about what heaven or hell is like or will be like, but this story is more about the sort of choices that we make and how we live right now. The sort of people we are, the, the way that the decisions that we make right now in life and how they matter to God more than maybe you and I re- even realize. We get another clue that this could be what's going on in Jesus telling this parable in the next passage, this next verse. The text tells us, son, remember that in your lifetime... You received your good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in agony. See, I wonder if Jesus was trying to elevate our perspective of how important, how radically important our days on earth are. Like how important the decisions that you make are. How vitally crucial the, 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 the posture of your heart is now. And how that will affect the long-term way that we relate to God. You see, I think Jesus is trying to wake us up here and give us the reality, the picture that, that we're going to have to give an account for how we live. We're going to have to answer for the decisions that we make. And I'm the last person, I think, I'm pro, I, I feel pretty strongly about this. I'm the last person in this city that wants to scare somebody into the kingdom of God. This is not like hell tactics, Hades, danger, hellfire, brimstone stuff. That's not what I'm trying to do here at all. And yet Jesus thought this parable was important enough to share and to tell. And it's in the scriptures and it's here for us this morning. And I wonder if we have ears to hear. I wonder if we would be willing to hear the the message, the the, the invitation to, to think well about our resources, the kind of life that we're living, the decisions that we're making. Because I think there's a point here where Jesus is trying to get us to understand that while we feel like we can constantly hit the reset button now, there will come a day when there will be no more reset button. 
I think part of the kingdom of God is mustard seed impact and potential and, 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 and a generous God who pays everybody equally and, and all of those beautiful things. But the kingdom of God is also a place that has a beginning and an ending. And eternity is eternity, friends. And the way that we steward our lives and the decisions that we make, the posture of our heart today affects so much into eternity. These two people's spiritual lives are on display for us. The reality, the fruit, the beauty of what comes or the pain of what comes, the results, the consequences are on display for us. And if we have the courage, we'll, we'll look and we'll listen and we'll pay attention. That at a certain point in our lives, what's done is done. And we'll have to give an account. Now, it's interesting to me, friends, that even in the rich man's darkest hour, he still can't see how lost he is. That the arrogance and the pride and the selfishness still grips him. And he still just can't quite see the injustice in the orientation of his life. That the days that he walked past this beggar, this poor man, this man that needed help and he ignored him, were days that he was sowing seeds of what the investment of the rest of his life was going to look like in eternity. And that even in eternity, he can't see his blindness. Even in eternity, there's actually no help. There's no way out. Do you see that? That if this story is true and that the kingdom of God is like this parable as well, this story, that there's a warning in here for us. But how we cultivate the soil of our own hearts really matters today. And I want you to also hear this morning, friends, that there's, Jesus isn't necessarily condemning those with wealth. That's not what the story is about. Jesus is trying to draw us into a place where we consider well the kind of life we're living. He's not telling us that to be rich or to have resources is bad or inherently evil. He's condemning the self-satisfied, self-reliant, and ungenerous way of life. And no matter what you have, whether you, whether you have no idea how you're going to get through the rest of this next week, or whether you have more money than you know what to do with, we can all hear from this warning. There's a way for all of us to be self-satisfied and self-reliant and ungenerous. And so just a couple of questions for us here this morning. What is it in your life that has ultimate value for you? And one of the ways that I ask this question of myself is what is the one thing that if taken away from me, I would be utterly devastated. It would crush me the most. What is that thing? Is it a person? Is it a title? Is it some status that some other people have given to you? Is it what your bank account says? What is it? That gives us a lot of, uh, that will give you a, a big clue as to what you value about what's most important to you in your life. Even as you approach God, are you super calculated about like managing every little thing that he gets 10% of everything and only that? Are there specific ways that we're ungenerous even in our life with God that looks more like the rich man than it does like anybody else. This matters, friends, because I think to answer this question, to wrestle with this question, 
to be honest with ourselves about this conversation reveals our allegiance. It reveals what and who we worship. And then another question I have is just about stewardship. Just about how are you, how are you stewarding the whole of your life? And it seems to me that we have way more to learn about this wealthy man who had access to everything and did nothing but throw his own party and live a good life. There's more to learn there if we pay attention. So the kingdom parables here are, are, are always calling us to an immediate response to, to consider well what we've heard and then to do something about it. I think that's one of the reasons why Jesus spoke in mystery and parables sometimes is because some people are going to lean in and get it and some people are just going to be like, oh, that was a good story. Where's brunch? And we could fall into the same trap today, friends. And I don't know if it's your finances or how you treat your enemy. I don't know if it's your sexuality or your job, your career, your resources, your family, relationship. I don't know what it is, but the whole of your life is being stewarded towards something, toward one end. And it's either the kingdom of God or it's not. And it seems to me Jesus wants to have a hard conversation with us this morning and ask us, are we stewarding our lives towards something that matters and will bring eternal fruit? Or are we stewarding our lives towards something that will ultimately lead to death and ultimately agony for eternity? And these are big questions that we have to wrestle with. The kingdom of God is beautiful and it's profound and it's encouraging and it's meant to call us to be the people that God has made us to be. But there's also a reality of the kingdom of God, friends, that says one day this experience will be over with the joys and the limitations that we encountered. This moment will be over and then another moment and then suddenly that's it. And we have eternity to either spend separated from God for forever or in complete and total restoration and perfection and paradise and relationship with him. And there's nothing once we get there that we can do to change it. This seems to me to be the teachings of this scripture. And it's hard for me to think about even saying. It's hard for us to consider. But it's true. We don't talk about things that are true because of the way we feel about them. Things aren't true simply because they make us feel good. And so we have to wrestle with these things well this morning. Do whatever you need to do to be in a posture and position of receiving and reflection and prayerfulness and being the kind of people that respond. Um, will you pray with me? Just, um, God... Lord, would you, uh, would you increase our faith this morning? Um, for some of us in here today, we, we really struggle and wrestle with what we believe. 
And God, I, I know that I come into this room so often, week in and week out, and I want to hear something really encouraging. I want to I hear something that, that lifts me up and builds me up and makes it easier for me to face the world out there. And God, I, I, I just, I trust that there's a handful of us in this room, at least this morning, that probably feel the same way. And so to hear a, a, a scripture like this, to consider a teaching like this, is, is really, God, nothing at all like what any of us probably expected or, or want to hear this morning. And yet, God, I thank you that you're the kind of God that not only highlights for us the beauty and the reality of the kingdom and life with you, that is love and joy and patience and kindness and forgiveness and all of those beautiful things. But God, you're also the kind of God who loves us so much that is unwilling for us to not consider the weight of our lives and eternity. God, we thank you for your son Jesus that died on the cross, that lived a perfect life, that took our sin onto himself. So that when we hear a teaching like this, God, we can consider that life with you isn't something that I've earned or that we could possibly get your attention by being perfect, God, but that we have received utter and complete forgiveness through your son, Jesus, on the cross. Thank you for that. And so, God, because this life matters, because the decisions that we make now impact our future impacts eternity and can impact other people's futures. God, I pray that you would cause us to be aware, first of all, of our own lives and our own stories and how we're stewarding our lives and resources towards your kingdom. But God, I also pray that you would cause us to have hearts that are broken for the lost. God, that you would break our hearts and cause us to not walk past the needy and the broken among us, God. God, that you would break our hearts and cause us to stop labeling people and deciding who's broken and who's not and who gets our attention and who doesn't. God, I pray that you would break our hearts for those that don't yet know you. And God, we would have the courage to to share about your life and your love, but also of the finality of eternity. God, you would give us the words to speak to those that will listen and that your kingdom would expand. In your name we pray. Amen.